0: to Rates and Barrels episode number 64. It is January 28, 2020. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, more Marte Partes in Arizona. The Reds signed another outfielder, and we attempt to find this year's post-hype breakouts. Some housekeeping first. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you want to listen to podcasts. So if you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, Please take the time to do that. We really appreciate it. And tell your friends if you think they'd like the show as well. Uh, some of you might be listening to this show for the very first time. If you are, welcome. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash ratesandbarrels. Everything we do is included with the subscription. We've got a draft kit launching on Monday. Yes, the day after... I don't even know if I can call it what it is. The day after that football game everyone's going to watch, we will have our fantasy baseball draft kit Launching for 2020, Starling Marte goes to Arizona. He, of course, has a club option for 2021. So it's basically two years of Starling Marte for Leover Piguero and Brennan Malone, plus some international money going back to Pittsburgh. Uh, first part of the question I have for you is in terms of home park changes and moving to what should be at least an equal, if not better, supporting cast. Does this trade change Starling Marte's value at all for you for this season?
1: I think I saw either was a Rob Silver quote or something that kind of resonated with me, which was just weird. Uh, he said something like, you know, every spring when we're going over our projections, we love Starling Marte. And every October when we're going over our team, we don't love him as much. And I can see why, I guess. Uh, you know, he's interesting because he's always projected to have a good batting average, um, you know, good. Homer totals, you know, be like a twenty twenty plus type guy, uh, and he's done that in his full seasons. Uh, you know, four out of the last five times, showing good power, good speed, uh, good batting average um, in his last four of his last five seasons, and the one in between, uh, one was injury, and one was a three eleven season with nine homers and forty seven steals. So he's been a good fantasy outfielder, but he's never cracked a hundred runs or RBI. Um, which I think goes to what you're saying. It's, um, you know, part partly supporting Cass, but it also uh, kind of points to the secret uh, problem he has staying healthy. Uh, he's only cracked 600 plate appearances twice. And so, you know, when you look at the projections, I think a lot of times we say, oh, Steamer, 664 plate appearances, 24 homers, 26 steals, up the runs and RBI on the new team, loving him. Uh, He's never done six hundred sixty four. His, his career high is six thirty three. So, I don't know. I, I think yes, uh, but there's also a, a certain amount of depth that the Diamondbacks have created uh, that will allow them to sit him, and maybe they'll have more healthy sits in order to keep him healthy and get him you know sort of across that six hundred plate appearance total, um, or maybe they're more likely to sit him for ten for fifteen days now. Um, if he's got a minor injury because they've got enough parts to maybe put Catel Marte uh, in center and play Jake Lamb and Eduardo Esc- Escobar on the infield. Um, so this is the reason why I'd like the D-backs a little bit more, and they've got this depth, and it's, it was a great move for them. Uh, but where I up him, where I would like to up him, uh, starting Marte, and it runs an RBI, I may want to ding him uh, in overall playing time. Um and uh, I'll take the under on 664 play- projected plate appearances.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty big number since he's never done it before, like you pointed out. But I do think he's pretty safe for 2020. I don't know if he's going to mm-hmm. really run a lot more. Uh, I do think there's a, a chance that he can a better chance he can replicate the runs and RBIs we saw last year, which probably
1: weren't going to repeat in Pittsburgh as a yeah. result of the trade. So. 97 um, runs in Pittsburgh this year. I, I don't think there'll be a single player who does that. No, we'll talk about what's left
0: behind there in, in just a moment. I think one... Murder and mayhem. It's not It's not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Pirish. The, yeah, right. <laughs> the situation, though, in Arizona, I mean, Josh Rojas was a guy that I liked as a, a super utility player, and he still kind of fits that mold. But with Marte, Quetel Marte, moving to second base with Starling's arrival... That pushes Eduardo Escobar over to third. It probably pushes Jake Lamb into kind of an infield, corner infield bench role. Maybe there's a trade coming, but this to me looks more like an Arizona team that did well with pitching and run prevention and didn't do as well with offense a year ago, trying to get better offensively and and strengthen one of its weaknesses. I think they want this depth because injuries do pile up and you want to have a lot of flexibility to give guys days off and to have that depth when you need it throughout the year.
1: You know, we've learned from other teams in the past there is still money to be saved even if you've tendered a guy a contract if you release them in spring. Um, the Diamond, uh, the Rays did it a couple times. There's other teams that have done it. The Dimebacks seem to be running them running their team a little bit more Raysian than they have in the past, where they'll they'll be coming and going at the same time, buying and selling at the same time. Um, they've done that the entire time they've been th- this new regime has been in place. Mike Hazen has been in place. So I would say that Jake Lamb may not make it. To the uh, opening day roster. Because right now, he's a slightly overpaid, uh, no clear platoon. I mean, I guess he could be the heavy side of the platoon at first base, uh, but I think Walker probably is ahead of him on the depth chart internally uh, over there in Arizona. So that means that Lamb has to have basically has to have a great spring. And as silly as that sounds, because that's a weird way to make decisions he's that marginal on this roster I think he has to have a good spring to make the team almost because if you take him off you get an extra roster spot somewhere else that could be Josh Rojas because uh, lo Castro is your 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 backup center fielder which you kind of need and then Vargas I, his first name is ildemarro yeah to be difficult for me I think what is it Ildeemaro Il Ildemaro, yeah, uh, that's not bad. Uh, Ildemaro Vargas, uh, it just—I rem- just remember it being long. <laughs> um, Ildemaro Vargas is probably the backup infielder, and if you just say, "Hey, Escobar is going to be our starting third baseman," then Vargas can back him up um, and 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 back up basically three infield positions now. Uh, then all of a sudden, Jake Lamb becomes a backup first baseman, which you don't necessarily need with a Stephen Vote on the roster, who's a good hitting uh, catcher, and B Kevin Crone on the way. Um, and Kevin Crone's a lefty, right? Kevin Crone's a righty. Oh no!
0: <laughs> yeah, Kevin well, Seth Beer is a lefty. Come Kevin Crone kind of just looks Seth like Beer's another lefty. Christian Walker. Like he's kind of the same profile. Yeah,
1: but they got they got Seth Beer coming and. I think probably Jake Lamb makes it through another season, but if he has a bad season or a bad pre a bad spring or a bad or an, an injured spring, uh, I could see them moving on. Yeah,
0: it's uh, it's pretty interesting to see how that uh, depth situation is going to play out. Uh, I still think Escobar plays a lot. Nick Ahmed, because of his defense, still plays a lot. Not really worried about those guys. I would look at Lamb maybe Walker as two losers and then Josh Rojas potentially, but Rojas is so versatile. If they were to move away from one of those infielders, I think he ends up being just fine uh, as a capable backup in outfield spots and around the infield. Yeah, like
1: Vargas is your defensive everywhere infield replacement and Rojas is a slightly more offensive one. Um, And so I think I would rather have those two guys in my primary bench spots I have to kind of re we had to recalibrate a little bit how this will work because almost every team now is going to every team now is going to have 13 batters, you know, mm-hmm. and so that does allow for more shenanigans and it does mean that you almost want to shave especially in the AL. I think you want to shave a—is especially in the AL maybe
0: NL. I think where you shave a little more playing time,
1: but in the AL they would have gone to more pitchers in the past. The AL was probably already at 13 pitchers for most, most teams, I would guess. Either way. Because you don't more, need like a bench pitch hit, pinch hitter and platooners as much in the AL. Yeah, I guess you don't carry them
0: as it is. I just wonder if you'd use them just more as straight pinch hitters, though, and less as guys that yeah. come into the game and stay into the game.
1: Well, anyway, I would, it's something that's happening across baseball uh, that we're not seeing the same peaks in terms of playing time. There's load management in baseball now where they're giving healthy players, uh, you know, programmatic rest. There's the fact that, you know, we used to have the 10 day DL. It's going to 15. So maybe that'll go in the other direction, but, uh, we use the DL. We have unlimited DL spots as teams. So like the teams, you know, use that. And you look at how the Dodgers have used their DL recently. um, and uh, we're doing things in the bullpen where we're sharing uh, saves totals. Um, we're more likely to be preventative when it comes to a starting pitcher uh, having some sort of issue. Uh, all of these things are pushing innings totals and plate appearance totals down for everybody.
0: It makes our game even more challenging.
1: Which yeah,
0: it's good. <laughs> it makes it more fun. It's good to have different ways to to build rosters. As far as the return the Pirates got, uh, let's start with Piguero. I mean, he's a very toolsy young shortstop. And reading some of the reports from Fangraphs and a few other places, it sounds like he's going to stick at shortstop. There was some concern initially that he wouldn't, but he's far away. But he's the type of high upside prospect that you want to get back, especially if you get back two guys. They got back Brendan Malone and some international money as well. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you'll see him pop up on top 100 lists right away in 2020, but he certainly has that sort of upward trajectory and uh, gives this Pittsburgh system a nice boost.
1: Yeah, I think the questions with Piguero uh, are really more, is he going to be a serviceable guy? that strikes out a little bit too much and doesn't have a lot of power, or does he combine the best aspects and become the guy that maybe has an average walk rate, a better than average strikeout rate, you know, average-ish power and good speed and great defense. So, you know, if you're looking for a high upside prospect in your dynasty league, like, uh, you know, he could be someone to put on your radar now that, um, you know, they have every reason to, uh keep him going and there's nobody really gonna block him at the top. Yeah,
0: I, I mean I I think there's you look at like O'Neal Cruz, but they're several years away from being on the same roster.
1: And honestly, O'Neal Cruz is such a monster that everyone like with Carlos Correa and, and, and Corey Seeger, everyone's gonna be talking about how he should be a third baseman the whole way through. So you know there's a there's a there's a possibility that O'Neal Cruz that people say uh, he could stick it short, like, you know, ends up uh, moving to one side or the other. Brendan Malone is the pitcher who
0: uh, went back the other way. Uh, and reading, you know, Keith Law's article on The Athletic, 92 to 95 from the right side, has a slider that's his best pitch as of right now. Um, I, I think there's definitely some projectability, uh, given how young he is and, and that there could still be a little extra velo coming from him. Fangraph's had him at a 45 plus for the future value. With already a 55 grade fastball, a 50 slider, 50 curveball, 40 changeup. And that's really good for a guy drafted out of high school who's only been in professional ball for part of one year now. So, again, this is the kind of direction that the Pirates didn't really have for the better part of, what, 30 years? You know, this is a team that's been just kind of mostly stuck at the bottom. I know they had a three year run of success uh, from 14 to 16, if I'm getting the years. Right off the top of my head where they you know, made three consecutive postseason appearances, but they haven't really chosen to go into full rebuild mode. And I think now with Ben Charrington and the new front office in place, they at least have that. They've at least decided we're tearing it down. We're going to acquire a lot of young talent. And it's going to take a while, but it's, there's actually an end goal four or five years down the road that you didn't necessarily feel this team had in a lot of the last two decades.
1: Well, I mean, I think that there's a a problem that's a little bit rotten at the top there. It's one of those bad ownership uh, situations, I think. And the Chris Archer deal that may have ended Neil Huntington's, I don't want to say career, but like ended his his tenure with the Pirates. uh, You know, I wouldn't be surprised if ownership had something to do with that, because the way that team was going... Uh, They before that, they were kind of a a team like the Rays who will buy and sell at the same time and just kind of uh, try to be good every year and don't give up your great prospects. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, they give up, you know, Austin Meadows and Tyler Glasnow for Chris Archer. Like it was totally out of character, I thought, for Neil Huntington. And it wasn't even in a season that seemed to make a lot of sense. So unless... Their pitching analysts thought, you know, if we do this with this with Chris Archer, he'll be an ace. Um, I I I don't see how that happened. It, it's a it's a weird situation, and also, um, you know, ownership has refused to really push payroll past the bottom third of the league, um, and you know, it's it smells to me. It smells a little rotten to me, and I don't like that. It's they've got a forty million dollar payroll right now. Um, I know that they're trying to rebuild. And it is good to have clarity, and I guess you know it's better than than muddling your way through a Chris Archer trade like that again. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I don't really love uh, this whole this whole situation with the Pirates. Um, it, it is an ownership problem.
0: It's a hundred percent Bob nutting. I don't think there's any reason to consider it to be anything else. I mean they they had a seventy four million dollar payroll last year. Like that's. Very, very low for a team that was having a good amount of success just a couple seasons ago. They got up to the 90 to 99 range uh, in the 15 to 17 window, but it's been going down each of the last two seasons, obviously down again three years in a row. Uh, As far as the playing time fallout goes in Pittsburgh, Jared Leva, Prospect of the Week alumnus, might be a winner in terms of eventual playing time in the Pittsburgh outfield. I mean, he hasn't played at AAA yet, so we're probably not going to see him for a couple of months. Into the season, but I think there is a chance that we're going to see him for maybe half of 2020 as one of the regulars in the Pirates outfield.
1: You know, he was one of the few uh, at the Arizona Fall League that I enjoyed the sound of the ball off the bat. Uh, My uh, very unscientific exit velocity measurer, uh, my ears. Um, But I I thought that he hit the ball well. Uh, I did talk to some evaluators that thought he was a little bit stiff in uh, his approach, but I mean, he's not going to be like Andres Torres stiff. I don't know if you remember how he used to swing. Uh, He was like all muscles, all shoulders. It was kind of ridiculous. But I know this because A, I watched him and B, because I don't think he can be super, super stiff and have a 20% strikeout rate. There's got to be some uh, hit tooliness in there. There's got to be some adjustability in his swing. Um, otherwise he would be having higher swing strike rates and higher strikeout rates. So uh, as is, I see the potential for a Fantasy five tooler. Now, I say that, don't get too excited. Like, I don't think his power tool is necessarily going to do 30-30. But could he get close to Starley Marte numbers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean...
0: When you look at what he's done in the minors, high A and double A these last two seasons, over 30 steals at both to- both stops, um, some developing power, 15 combined home runs the last two seasons, better walk rates than Marte, slightly higher K rates that could come down. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he could kind of pull that off. 24% above league average at high A two years ago, 23% above league average at double A in 2019. So... I, I like him uh, as a player. I think in terms of how he fits for your 2020 leagues, it's NL only reserve and probably draft and hold. unless you're in a keeper dynasty setting, he might already be owned in those leagues. Uh, but I think you could justify throwing that dart on him in one of the last few rounds of a, a 50 round draft and hold at this point.
1: I think I would focus more on, on longer term keeper leagues because they may want to just tank the season um, and keep him down there till, till July or whatever. Um, because, in the major leagues, it's funny, you know, looking over this depth chart, you know, you got Brian Reynolds, you got Gregory Polanco, and you're like, okay, you know, they've got two decent outfielders, as long as Polanco's healthy. <laughs> and then I was, I was looking over left field, and I'm like, who's Jay Martin? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Jason Martin. Jason Martin, also recovering from surgery. So they got, in fact, if you zoom back out further, they got two corner outfielders coming back from surgery, and Brian Reynolds, a guy who may not uh, be a true center fielder in the long run. So there's a lot of uh, tankiness to this team, and I would say that maybe Jose Osuna comes out. It, it, right now, he's only you know ten percent at left field, ten percent at right field, ten percent at third. I could see him emerging with a full time job. He's got interesting Statcast numbers in that he does not hit the ball in the air enough, so his barrels are not great. But his exit velocity is actually pretty decent, and that's going to be enough to kind of help his BABIP stay up, give him some doubles, uh, and I think you know do. A full season of kind of what he's projected to do. I think like a 270 average and 25 homers. Um, so that to me is your redraft reserve pick. Um, but Oliva, I think definitely zooms up the boards a little bit when it comes to dynasty, just because opportunity has to be part of your appraisal of a, of a prospect. You don't want to wait, you know, four or five years for a guy. You kind of want to wait two or three years for a prospect if you're if you're thinking about things that way um and so i would say that i think that uh oliva is the better talent but osuna is an interesting pickup for this year in terms of uh kind of reserve with upside Yeah, deep, deep
0: leagues, though, I think is where you're focusing if you're going to do something like that. I imagine they're going to probably do something where they play Kevin Newman and Cole Tucker in the middle infield together. One of those guys as the everyday shortstop, one of those guys, a regular at second. I mean, Adam Frazier could probably go play a corner outfield spot just Mm -hmm. because you want to put him on the field somewhere. So put him in left platoon with somebody, you know, that could kind of fill a spot if you're going to move Reynolds to center field anyway. Um, You might as well see what you have in in Cole Tucker, right? So I think he's a guy that is lined up to play a lot, sort of indirectly from Starling Marte being traded away.
1: I can't imagine Keone Kila makes opening day on this roster because, I mean, unless they keep him for the trade deadline, unless their offers are no good. Uh, But he's only got one season left with the Pirates, and he fought Kyle Crick at the end of the season. (laughs) Uh, maybe this new regime doesn't care. And it's like, hey, fight each other. It's going to be one of those years that gives people something to write about. <laughs> but they could have a really good bullpen without Keon Aquila. Kyle Crick is good. Ricardo Rodriguez is good. Michael Feliz is good. You know, that's a decent bullpen without Keon Aquila. So I would assume he's gone maybe later rather than sooner, but I would assume he's gone. You know, this team is actually. Not that interesting for me to fantasy wise because Polanco's shoulder's so bad. He's been a guy I've liked that I, you know, at this point the steals are probably gone, and if the shoulder is going to keep b- bothering him, then how much power can we bet on? I do like Brian Reynolds, but I think he's appropriately priced. I don't know how much more upside is left. Jose soon is a good deep sleeper. Uh, Kevin Newman debuted at 26 years old. He's not. He doesn't have much upside left, and in fact, I think he'll regress. You know, he he's doesn't have uh, the kind of uh, power or batted ball stats to really keep up a high BABIP, So I think he'll be kind of an empty 280 with like 15 steals, maybe maybe 10 homers. Um, and that's, that's coming off of last year. And that's not that exciting in most leagues. So, you know, in Kevin Newman and Brian Reynolds, you have your best probably fantasy assets on this team and um, I'm not super excited about either. Joe Musgrove, there's something there. Uh, there was a little late-season velocity tick. I noticed he was actually over 94 in the late season, and if he comes into spring throwing 94, if he's you know sitting 94 for three-plus innings, I would take notice. I wouldn't necessarily notice if his first outing is 96 because or 95 because they're throwing one inning. A lot of times they just let it air out. But if he, if he starts doing the longer ones and sitting 94 still, uh, I'd bump up the projections a little bit. Maybe he can do like a 3.75 ERA, you know, eight plus strikeouts per nine um, and be a useful guy, but not necessarily someone who's about to jump into stardom. Um, so you've got in Reynolds, Newman, and Musgrove, three useful guys. Uh, Chris Archer turfed the, um, the two-seamer late in the season and became legit, like, normal, old-school Chris Archer, which is like a 4-2 ERA, lots of strikeouts and lots of homers. So, again, a flawed, useful guy. Newman, Archer, Musgrove, Reynolds, flawed, useful guys. That's about it. And and Josh Bell probably going to regress a little bit. I don't think that they figured him out in the second half, but it's just uh, he had such a out-there first half that I think he's just much more like a 270-30 home run guy. And so... I wouldn't price him at anything close to 40 homers.
0: Yeah, Bell's interesting from a trade chip perspective because he still has a few years left. I believe he's a free agent after 2022, if I'm not mistaken. So that's a, that's a bit of time left. But trading first baseman, it's tough it to do, right? Unless doesn't usually star. get too much back. Yeah, so they just they don't have a lot of exciting tradable assets. Uh, I feel for our guys. Rob Beer Temple, Stephen Nesbitt—they host the Yins Above Replacement Podcast. It's gonna be—it's gonna be a long year on the Yins yeah. Above Replacement Pod. It's gonna be a very long year. You almost
1: time. hope Keelan Crick stay on there so there's stuff to report on.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, there's got to be, there's got to be something there to get excited about eventually, but uh, it just might not be 2020. Hopefully, for their sake, something happens, something good happens,
1: in players. I mean, I love O'Neal much. Cruz. I just picked him in the baseball prospectus. Um, you know, prospect draft, start a prospect draft at at the first of the second round. So, you know, there's something exciting about someone that, uh, you know, I think I was saying to you, like, I I think if there's anybody in the minor leagues that could be a rod in the future uh, it's O'Neill Cruz. Now he has to cut the strikeout rate some, and he hasn't had that season where he puts like the better strikeout rate together with his best power. But I mean, just look at the guy. He's like six foot seven, just, you know, just, sinewy, lovely body. Wait. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) What happened? Uh, I like O'Neal Cruz uh, and he's already in double A. So watch him watch him sort of take off this year in double A. I think I think that could happen. Yeah. Maybe that's
0: the key. If you're if you're on the Pirates beat this year, you just take a lot of road trips to watch the prospects and just get the stories there. Uh, Because the Pirates are really the only team in the NL Central not trying to win this year. The other four teams are either pushing chips in or have a strong enough core where they think they can contend for a division title and make a run at a playoff spot. And the Reds continue to spend. They added Nick Castellanos. It's pretty interesting because Castellanos lands in the most hitter-friendly park that he's played in. Of course, he started his career in Detroit, spent the end of last season with the Cubs. Uh, I didn't see the Reds adding another outfielder. And one thing that I may have overlooked yesterday when this news was announced was that Nick Sanzel's coming off of labrum surgery on his throwing shoulder. So my snap reaction was, oh, maybe Nick Senzel and or Jesse Winker are now trade pieces for some sort of Francisco Lindor blockbuster. You know, they could upgrade shortstop, give up major league ready young talent. Maybe they match up there. I think this is actually just a team that has playoff aspirations, doing a lot like what we talked about the Arizona, where they want depth. They want to be mm-hmm. covered in case things break down or in case things don't work out. And Castellanos as a hitter is going to fit in great in that park. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I also think moving him into Great American Ballpark, where the outfield is smaller, reduces the magnitude of his terrible defense. It's not going to make him a good defender. It's not going to make him an average defender. It's just going to make him slightly less of a liability in the field than he has been in more cavernous home parks.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I think it's a good fit for him. And there is an overlay, I think, that uh, maybe Trent Rosecrans tweeted out that shows Castellanos batted balls in Great American, and it's pretty exciting. There, There's... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily do that because there's atmospheric situations going on. You know, there's uh, it doesn't you don't you don't just like take all your batted balls and like put them. And also he has to play. You know, he's only playing half this half the season there. Um, but uh, you know, Steamer's up to 28 homers. I could see him easily hitting like 33, 34, 35 homers this year. Uh, and that's exciting because he's uh, really he's kind of like your hit tool guy where he barrels things up really well. Uh, He has a high BABIP every year. Um, And he's also an expression of why hit tool is not all in strikeout rate, because you saw early in his career, he was like a 24, 25% strikeout rate, but he still had the plus hit tool. He still had plus BABIPs, um, and he still made the most of his contact. And then as he matured and cut that strikeout rate a little bit, now you see what a kind of plus hit tool guy can look like, um, even if it's not, necessarily superstar. So I think he's going to have like a 285 average and, you know, like 32 homers this year, which is above his projections. Very excited about him. Uh, I would also say that if you're preparing for drafts, one of the easiest ways, one of the lowest tech ways to do it is to just go through the depth charts of fangraphs because those power the projections on their site and those are going to go into the auction calculator. And so people are going to just run those and you're going to have people in your league that are just running those And right now, the Cincinnati Reds depth chart on Fangraphs is 100% wrong. Like, there's, I mean, there's no two ways to put it. Like, right now it has Aristides Aquino getting 70% of the right field uh, at bats and Jesse Winker getting 20%. And that is just wrong. And it's not all Fangraphs' fault because Shogo Akiyama doesn't have a card yet. And so once you put in Shogo... I think this will make sense. And I do think that they work their hardest to get things right. So I'm not trying to denigrate anybody, but I'm saying this is an opportunity for fantasy players. So I think what's most likely to happen is that Shogo is the starting center fielder on opening day. Maybe Senzel opens on the DL. And you're right. This is a team that wants to make the playoffs. They're building in depth and they'll just see what happens. You have Castellanos, Shogo, and Winker as the everyday outfielders, in my opinion. Um, Aquino as your DH Slash uh, against lefties, because Winker is pretty bad against lefties. So maybe they just, they're gonna bake in a platoon there with 13 batters. uh, You know, it's much more possible to do that sort of thing. So they're gonna bake in a platoon there. And then when Zenzel is healthy, uh, there becomes a the question of like, oh, well, how's Mike Moustakis playing at second? And uh, how healthy is Votto and is Suarez healthy? And if everybody's healthy, it does get a little bit more crowded. But still, Senzel has enough versatility to maybe spell Mike Moustakis once a week at second and spell Winker in right field uh, and spell Shogo in center field uh, and spell uh, Nick Castellanos in left field. So I, I still think that Senzel will get to like 400-plus plate appearances, but I would put him squarely behind Castellanos, Shogo and Jesse Winker in order of plate appearances.
0: Yeah, I think Winker and Senzel end up being pretty close because I think Winker will probably end up having to sit against lefties since they have 400,
1: 400 to 500 plays. plate appearances maybe.
0: Yeah, and I think just because he, the injury he's coming back from is – less significant than the one that Senzel is coming back from. That would also lead me to give Winker the slight edge, but I think you do have them tiered the way I would. where Castellanos and Akiyama play a lot. Senzel and Winker play quite a bit. Aquino, we already had some reservations about him on several pods in, in the last couple of months. He's got minor league options left as well, so if they would want him to play every day, they can send him down to AAA, let him do that, bring him back up when there's a little more playing time available. Uh, I think this really hurts his value, and yeah, I think those projections, as far as the playing time go, have not fully caught up to that yet. I just, I'm I'm bummed I have, the only place I have him is a deep dynasty league where he's an obvious keeper, but I'm bummed this happened when it did, because I wanted people to keep overpaying for him in
1: redraft leagues,
0: and eventually that's just not going to happen anymore, it's going to be very clear to everybody that the playing time is not there barring an injury or two to some of the other outfielders in the mix. If
1: Senzel is healthy, then uh, Akino could easily... He has an option left. He could go down, and then Senzel becomes Winker's primary platoon partner um, and also kind of moves around. So um, I think, you know, Josh Van Meter is probably the biggest loser in all this. Um, He becomes... I don't know. They've actually got Senzel listed as the backup shortstop on Fangraphs, which I don't know. Does that make him more wrong, or is that kind of an interesting... Um, opportunity in terms of your idea of Lindor and Seager, uh, you know, Ken Rosenthal had a great piece today about you know how that fits financially. They've already broken a team record in Cincinnati in terms of payroll, adding an 18 million dollar Lindor might be too much, especially since you won't be throwing much money their way, um, and they've already tried to do a deal where Lindor goes to the Dodgers, Seager goes to the Reds and something else, and then a bunch of prospects go to the Indians, and that fell through. So um, <clears throat> I don't think there's another level. I'm not sure that I see Senzel as a shortstop, but the problem is I don't know who their backup shortstop is. It's not Josh Van Meter. No, they don't have that player on the roster. I mean, Jose Iglesias was that guy last yeah. year. If Senzel's like a, a decent backup shortstop, then, then he becomes the Van Meter, basically, and he just plays everywhere. I mean, if he's athletic enough to transition
0: to center field well, which I think he did last year, I don't think that was a disaster by any stretch of the imagination. If he's athletic enough to play there and play third and play second with the amount of shifting teams do, it doesn't seem that far-fetched that he could be the backup shortstop.
1: Maybe you play him behind, like, uh, Bauer, you know, who's a little bit more of either a fly ball or a strikeout or a walk, you know? Fewer balls in play.
0: I do like it, though, for his potential value in season going up. If he ends up playing a little more of a super utility role, it just makes it easier to fit him into different spots in your lineup.
1: And if we're, what we're saying when we were talking about this depth chart and how it's going to work out, um, and it, this depth chart not being right right now, uh, Senzel is going to be uh, uh, dinged perhaps too hard by some of the depth chart stuff. So depth charts has not at 472 uh, plate appearances. So you just have to kind of... Uh, think to yourself about whether or not you think, you know, as a backup shortstop and in these different positions, he can do a little better than that.
0: I think that's probably a pretty good number on him, though. I don't yeah, I don't know if not, I see I him getting much
1: higher. It's a little more than I thought when I clicked over, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it's it's certainly possible that he, he plays more than that. So we got a, a question from
0: uh, Steve G about post-hype breakouts. A good, broad question. I think that will help a lot of people out. Uh, And he writes, there always seems to be a few post-type breakouts each year, specifically players that were once huge prospects that have lost their luster only to pop up a few years later. Two that come to mind last year happened to be on the same team, Yohan Moncada and Lucas Giolito. My question to you guys is this, who are your 2020 versions for those guys who were once big prospects that might only be a tweak or two away? We've talked about the tweaks that Giolito made, picking up that extra velo. Uh, Moncada was more aggressive, but you know who fits that group? And I, I, I narrowed the list down because it could be a ton of players, and you can certainly add more to this Eno, you know, but just for the sake of kind of thinking about how highly regarded Moncada and Giolito were as prospects, I looked back at the 2017 and 2018 top 100 prospect lists from Eric Longenhagen and, and Kylie McDaniel and really just focused on the top 30. I was looking for guys that haven't put it all together. So we'll start with some hitters. I'm going to run through the names. We can pick on whoever you like and add to it. J.P. Crawford, Brendan Rogers, Lewis Brinson, Corey Ray, and Luis Urias are guys that are very highly regarded as prospects. They've had limited chances in most cases to play in the big leagues. I think Ray is the only one who hasn't debuted yet, and their stock has fallen considerably. Do any of those hitters pop to you as guys that could put it together in 2020?
1: No. <laughs> um, so Brendan Rogers is kind of exciting in that he's got that home park, you know, uh, I think story, even with his extension is only there for two years and uh, anybody that could play regularly on the infield and, and, and Colorado seems like a, a fun bet. Um, even his projections, which you know, it's projection for a minor leaguer, take it with a grain of salt, still say he could hit two seventy with like twenty five homers uh over a full season. So he's he's Brandon Rogers is interesting. The one problem is he's coming off of a torn labrum, like a it's a big deal. You know, it's not the right time to buy. I mean, or maybe it is. If you if you can wait, if you can wait, it's an okay time to buy, uh, because it's probably near the bottom of his of his value. But I don't think it's going to happen this year. You know, uh, you know, he's going to be coming off of off of the surgery, and they still have a uh, story, and they've got you know a litany of people at second base. So I don't think it's him. JP Crawford. I actually like JP Crawford in the old sort of uh, Fangraphs like one point oh sense. In that, I like that he walks a fair amount. He makes good con- uh, contact. Um, he uh, uh, he looks like he could put up maybe a league average power line. He steals some bases. You know, you could see him put. You know, like you know, back in the day, I would have said give him a three hundred BABIP and uh, he'll have like a two fifty average and you know maybe eighteen homers and you know fifteen steals and now you're talking about someone who's relevant, right? It's not super exciting. And then they're, you know, maybe he takes a leap. You know, he's only 25 years old. Maybe he takes a leap. The problem is now that we have Statcast numbers, I can tell that he just hits the ball with such little authority. I mean, it's like 84 mile an hour exit velocity. It's just, it's just not exciting, you know? <laughs> he's probably not going to have a league average power line and he's probably not going to have a league average BABIP, which means he's going to be, valuable because of his defense and because he can sort of walk and you know dink and dunk his way into okay offense but it's just not going to be good for for uh, fantasy Louis Brinson I think is just a total mess Corey Ray is a total mess um uh, did you mention that last one uh Austin Hayes I, I threw him
0: into the mix just kind of as we were talking because I was looking through
1: you did say Luis Urias I did yeah Luis Luis Urias is in, is in the mix too if the wrist thing is not a big deal then yes, he's the one I'd pick, or maybe Austin Hayes. Those are those are the last two are the best ones. The last two are the best ones. I shouldn't say no as a blanket statement. Luis Urias uh, could put it together, and uh, I think he's a likely candidate to do kind of what I want out of Crawford, where he can hit for league average power, walk, uh, and you know throw in a few steals and get to something like 260 with 20 homers and five steals. Like that's not at all that hard for him to do. Um, so I think that that's, he's an interesting one. And Austin Hayes is going to get all the burn in the world, man. You know, the world is his oyster this year. I think they're going to just put him out there and and let him play. And, uh, even his projections are pretty fun. You know, two fifty with 20 homers, eight steals. Uh, he's definitely a guy I would like in AL only. Yes, please. Uh, beyond that, you know, I think he's tickling at the, at the feet of, uh, mixed leaguers a little bit. What I'm trying to figure out,
0: going back to Brendan Rogers just for a second, is that you know he hit the DL back in June with what they called a right shoulder impingement and things obviously got worse from there. The exit velocity numbers, 86.9, definitely on the discouraging side of the scale. But I wonder, like, how much of that gets dragged down because of his attempts to play after suffering that shoulder injury? You know, like, that's something that I kind of wonder about. Or it, it, if the impingement was there for a few weeks before yeah. he actually went in the IL, like that was working against him. We, we, you know, we, don't, we don't know.
1: His line doesn't read, you know his line coming up doesn't read like someone who couldn't hit the ball. Right. Like the, the track record
0: age to level production was really good, and that yeah. kind of leads me to believe that what happened last year was at least somewhat,
1: if not entirely influenced by health. Yeah. And, you know, the, my position on health has become muddled because of new research, but, you know, I used to think that, you know, buying on someone who played through injury was a good one because their projections wouldn't capture that. But the problem is that, you know, present injury predicts future injury and, you know, present injury makes you weaker in certain spots and makes, you know, makes everything more difficult. And big part of aging is just injury. So I would say that a young player, you know, someone who's younger than 27 years old, that has an injury, gets it fixed, you know, I could see that as an opportunity to buy. Uh, But uh, if it's an older player, uh, it makes you wonder about their ability to bounce back in the same way because I know because I can't bounce back in the same way anymore. I'm an old man.
0: With Brendan Rodgers in a redraft league, he's cheap. Like He's probably one of your last picks, even in a 15-team mixed league. He's got an ADP close to 500.
1: I mean, if you're buying him, I think what you're buying is uh, the next third baseman after Nolan Arenado gets traded, I guess. You, you believe Nolan Arenado, Nolan Arenado will get traded and a, a starting third baseman won't come back. That's right. what I think you're buying if you're if you're buying on. Or that, you know, the Rockies do something they haven't really done in the past, which is just say, you know, wake up on, you know, opening day and say, hey, Brandon Rodgers is our second baseman.
0: Play the young guys. Play the talent. It's an option. You could always do that.
1: I'm a little bit more excited about Sam Hilliard in that uh, in that sort of vein in terms of redraft. Because Sam Hilliard has power and speed, and David Dahl is hurt all the time. Ian Desmond shouldn't have a job at this point, I don't think. Uh, Rymel Tapia may not be a major league outfielder, um, and that's those are your left and center fielders as a group. Yeah, play Sam Hilliard and draft yeah, Sam Hilliard. Please play I, Sam Hilliard. <laughs> I,
0: at the price, I, I don't care if I have to cut him in every league because he's not playing enough. I will. Continue to draft Sam Hilliard, hoping that they just go ahead and, and turn him loose. I, I think he could do a ton of damage, even if he weren't in Colorado, but he is in Colorado for half his games. Totally agree with you on Ryan I Tapia. Mean, he's a fifth outfielder, yeah. probably at this point. Uh, shouldn't get more playing time than that anyway. The pitching side is usually pretty messy with injuries. I mean, that's part of what led Giolito down the path of not having the same stuff that made the Nats draft him as an early first rounder years ago. So you look at, like, Alex Reyes and Brent Honeywell, A.J. Puck even coming off Tommy John surgery. Forrest Whitley's coming off a weird year last year. There's some injuries sprinkled in there. You know, Michael Kopeck. What do you make of, of those guys as, as pitchers that may put the pieces together here this season?
1: Michael kopeck has a real chance of being an ace. And he's just got intense movement and velocity on his pitches. And I think it's mostly just about his health. I mean, he's got like an inch and a half of rise on regular uh, four seamers, which is amazing because he throws 97 on average. And usually when you get over 94, 95, Walker Bueller told me, the Dodgers told him that, you know, you don't, convert as much spin into ride past 94 miles an hour so pitches tend to straighten out but not his 97 with you know an inch and a half two inches of rise on people so and it's not even straight left to right it's got wiggle the change has five inches more drop eight mile an hour uh difference I think it's going to be a good pitch uh and so far it's gotten 15 percent whiffs and hasn't given up a homer in 46 pitches uh and the slider uh I don't have the spin direction in front of me right now uh, but it looks like a power curve because it's it's got more drop than most, uh, and I can't imagine with something that has eleven to twelve inches different drop than his four seamer that he can, and thirteen mile an hour difference that he can't make that work. So I know that command is going to be a question for Kopech, and you know commanding anything that moves that much and goes that hard uh, maybe is a big ask. Uh, but I don't think his walk numbers have been out of sight bad. Um, and I don't think that when he throws 97, I don't think he should be necessarily giving up homers like he's projected to. So um, I absolutely think Kopack is draftable in every league. He's definitely going to make my top 75. He's got nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. I don't, and he's. I think they're that team wants to win right now. They're gonna they're gonna put him in there. So if we want, if I want to pick one name off of this whole list. Uh, if it's a hitter, it's probably Austin Hayes, and if it's a, if it's a pitcher, it's definitely Michael Kopech. I think the other thing people get really hung up on with
0: guys that fit into this group are workload concerns. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kopech, of course, coming off Tommy John, uh, having not pitched in any minor league or major league games last year, I think he did some instructional stuff. It's really difficult to come up with that number like, okay, how many innings do you comfortably project? You go back to 2018. Michael Kopech had 140 and two-thirds innings between AAA Charlotte and his four-start run with the White Sox. You give him a year off, maybe you don't go much beyond that, but is it fair to assume that he can come back and at least
1: match the 2018 workload? He should be pitching in spring. What are they going to do in spring if he's already finished his program? He's already pitched in some instructional stuff, and he's pitching in spring. Are they going to say, "No, we're still going to put you on the DL to start the season"? Well, we're going to put you in the minor leagues. I think they're going to, I think they're going to set him in there, and they're going to find ways to skip his starts and maybe send him down around uh, the the All Star break and shut him down as soon as they're out of the playoffs. And I think that gets him to like 125 innings. And if he's got 125 innings with the upside that I think he's got in that arm, he's he's relevant. Yeah, I don't mean, know if it's Paddock. Clayton Kershaw almost won a Cy Young with like 150 innings. Yeah, I don't know if he
0: gets to like Paddock ratios anytime soon because of the the walks. I don't know if yeah. those are going to go away quickly, but... It could be a lot of strikeouts in that yeah. limited workload as well. I like to pile up pitchers like this in the draft and hold format, I like having three yeah. or four of these young guys that have kind of questionable workloads because you just end up with enough viable arms in a format like that. You you have depth. You can get away with it and they tend to be a little bit underpriced. Like their price reflects a normal bench where you have to make a decision to cut them, not the type of league That you're playing in where everybody gets to carry extra arms it worked really well with like paddock urias and i think lizardo i did all three of those in in one league last year and i thought at the price hit on one get something from the other and if one busts, no problem at all and i think a similar approach is something you can pull off with uh, guys like this i mean brendan mckay I, I i don't think he's really fallen enough stock wise to to put him in this group but for some reason, it seems like people are a little bit off of him in redraft leagues right now. Not like ignoring him, but they're just not that excited compared to how excited they were when he came up to debut with the Rays last
1: year. Like, <laughs> yeah, what's up it's with like that? The the new prospect sign. Now he's had fifty innings of a five ERA. We don't like him anymore. But yeah, but he had a fifty-six
0: to sixteen strikeout to walk. Like that's like that. That would normally get us excited, right? Yeah, I mean, like it, he's he's in that that group of players that. Had he not debuted, his price would probably be higher. Be a bit better. Yeah. <laughs> like getting getting there and getting hit a little bit actually hurt his stock when that's actually an achievement of itself.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know that, that the Rays uh, continually make me nervous in terms of playing time, but there's a lot of opportunity um, when you do get someone right, and they and I think like if someone steps to the forefront like a Blake Snell did in the past and just says no. I deserve this playing time, they give him to him, you know. Uh, they didn't muck around with Austin Meadows that much last year, you know. Willie Adamas played, you know. So, you know, they'll they'll play around with Tsutsugo and Choi and Diaz and, like, who plays when. But in terms of if Brennan McKay comes into camp and blows him away, then, like, sure, Ryan Yarbrough can be, uh, you know, behind Yanni Chirinos. They might just combine those two to as, like, a sort of tandem, you know. And, uh, and and McKay can couldn't run and, and be a regular pitcher. I will, one thing I will say is between the organizational thing and the fact that Brent Honeywell has missed two years, uh, two full years, I don't know if he's necessarily on my list of, you know, stacking young guys with uh, playing time issues. I'd rather much rather have AJ. Puck, who pitched in the major leagues last year. Uh, and pretty much pitched with two... I mean, it, it says he threw 10% percent changeups, but he, he he told me he didn't feel like he had that. So uh, here's a guy who threw last year with two pitches uh, and did well. Uh, it, spe- it was out of the pen, but now he thinks he can get the change-up back uh, and maybe even the curveball. Like, there's definitely a lot going on there. And if you step in the box against him... I mean, I, I did virtually. I didn't actually. I would probably be dead. Uh, but if you... If you stand behind home plate when A.J. Puck throws, you can see the hair. The slot isn't necessarily Randy Johnson, but the hair, the wildness, the way he just feels like everything's coming at you a million miles an hour, his extension is good. He is a scary, scary guy to step in against. Even more so, I think, than Lizardo. Lizardo's stuff is great, uh, but A.J. Puck is the one that's uh, that's scarier. So, If I could get Puck and Lizardo on my teams uh, without spending too much money, I can't. One one caveat is let's watch to see what the hype machine does. There is a delicate balance between, oh, he's a good value because he's this price. And I think maybe he can throw more than 100 innings uh, versus, oh, the hype machine got him. And now everyone's paying prices like he's going to be a three five ERA for 150 innings. Yeah. Where would you cap that
0: workload? He had 125 innings before he got hurt back in 2017, missed all of 18 and then just kind of picked it up in rehab last year, got 30 or so across a bunch of different stops. Like, Where are you comfortable projecting workload for A.J. Puck in 2020? I
1: was talking to our beat writer, Alex Coffee about a, a, an appropriate over-under for combined innings from Lizardo and Puck, and I set it at 250. Lizardo is probably a little bit closer to being the bigger half, uh, but if you made me put a number on both of them, I'd probably say like, You know, 130 to 140 on Lazardo and, you know, 100 to 110 uh, from Puck.
0: And maybe they get lucky and get more, but that's probably a a fair place to uh, put
1: those. If they get lucky and get more, I think it's Lazardo that they push because he just threw more innings last year.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: We've got a couple more questions
0: to get to before we sign off. This one comes from David. Why don't people talk more about the next potential step in the Yandy Diaz progression? He seems like a Yelich light opportunity, especially in dynasty leagues, hard hits, barrels, exit velo, and learning to adjust launch angle. And Yandy Diaz doesn't come up a lot in off-season conversations that I've listened to. I think we talked a lot about him early last season when the power was ticking up to that, that level for the first time. But he missed so much time with injuries— it does seem like people are just sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying, "Well, it's a crowded infield. The Rays mix and match a lot." Shrug emoji. Like that's that's the sort of the, the response people are, are giving. Uh, what, what do you think about Diaz?
1: You know, I was in on him last year. Uh, traded for him at Devil's Rejects with James Anderson. Um, he's our third baseman this year, so we're really hoping that he plays a, a, a larger slate of games. Uh, I think injury has been part of the question of him coming up. He doesn't have a ton of um you know 600, 700 plate appearance years on his roster, uh going backwards. So and then with the fact that his defense is not very good, um, you're you're gonna have to bake in some stuff. But uh you know, with the depth charts giving him five hundred and ninety plate appearances, yeah, yeah, I could see that. You know, and I think the the projections are a little bit light. Um, given that his barrel rate was so amazing last year. It's funny, because Andy Diaz did not really uh, up his launch angle much. He, his median launch angle, or his average, went from 4.4 to 5.7. But his barrel rate went from 4.4% to 10.4%. So he kind of just, when he when he squared something up, he just lifted it better. So it was his well-hit balls uh, were in the air. So I could see him out doing the projections when it comes to power. So I could see him, you know, one of the things about Yelich Light... He's not going to steal any bases. Right. Uh, That's these. <laughs> I don't even know about the five stolen bases he's given. I mean, the dude is a, a truck, but not not in a, not a fast truck. No. <laughs> not, not, no. Not one of those hot rod trucks. So I'm thinking uh, 275 with 20 to 25 homers, uh, good on-base percentage, very good on-base percentage leagues, um, definitely a useful player. Uh, I just don't think he's going to jump into that uh, star status, that star echelon. He's 28, doesn't steal bases. You know, there is the defensive part of it. Finding
0: the next Yelich, that could be a future goal or topic or article or something, though. I think we could kind of take a run at that. Uh, The other part of the question or separate question that David sent us was uh, Chase Anderson has been working on a new pitch. Any interest in the late rounds in Chase Anderson with the move to Toronto?
1: You know, one thing about Chase Anderson adding new pitch is that uh, I think I the ratio of how excited I get about a new pitch, uh, the ratio of how excited I get a new pitch, is the 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 other side of the ratio is how many pitches the pitcher has. Um, and right now, Chase Anderson has five pitches, so I just don't know if it's necessarily the same thing to go from five pitches to six as it is to go from like for example when you go from two to three pitches. It's got to be huge that you might change yourself from a reliever to a starter with that, you know, just think of uh, Frankie Montas. But if you already have five pitches, like what's he even going to throw? He throws two fastballs, a change a curve and a cutter. Is he going to throw a slider? And the number of people who throw three breaking balls and command it and separate them and actually have three breaking balls is very small. It's part of what Max Scherzer does. And then there's, There's not a lot of other people. Shane Green tried to do it, and he didn't pull it off. Um, You know, Chad Green tried to do it and didn't pull it off. There's a lot of people who tried to do three breaking balls, and there's only very few that have figured it out. Um, So I would say I'm not super interested in Chase Anderson. Uh, Maybe his home park situation got a little bit better, uh, and so maybe his home runs, uh, as projected, are are wrong. Um, so I think he, you know, he's projected at almost two homers per nine, which is kind of unsightly. Um, but I could see him uh, having a four ZRA and being useful in certain leagues. I just I, I don't know what that pitch is and how much it's going to change his life. He's probably an on and off the roster sort of player in a 15
0: team mixed league. If you get him cheap in an AL only, he might be slightly profitable. But I think you got to be kind of careful with how you use him with those matchups that he'll face. In the he AL. He strikes leagues. me as like a dollar pitcher, really. Maybe two. Yeah, but he might return five or six. Again, yeah. we're talking like AL labor, like a 12 team AL only league. We're not talking 15 team mixed
1: league. Most, most likely, I think, is, um, you know, he shows a little bit of the importance of looking at weekly projections in 15 team leagues. I bet you there are some weeks where he's like a good pitcher, like a top 100 type pitcher that he's totally useful in that week. Uh, and then weeks where he's like, the three hundredth pitcher you would want to use because he's like got a start in Baltimore and a start in New York or something.
0: Yeah. I could I could live with that. I mean, I'm looking at the ADP right now. He's the third Anderson among pitchers being drafted. Five twenty nine is ADP. He's better than that, but he's just not a guy you're gonna draft in a mixed league and hold all season long unless it's that fifty round format. And most leagues aren't like that. So I I see him as more of a, hey, you're going to spend 2% of your fab plan for this two-start week, and you're probably going to cut them and yeah. fill that roster spot with somebody else yeah. the following week. So, useful, but not consistently rosterable. Beer of the month coming up just around the corner. That's going to be on Thursday. We're going to do that on the last Thursday episode of every month going forward, so get excited for that. As always, you can reach us via email ratesandbarrels@theathletic.com if you want to send us an email. Uh, be sure to spell out the word "and" if you do that. Don't use a plus sign or uh, hit the "and" symbol. Uh, just rates and barrels spelled out at theathletic.com. You can find Eno on Twitter at enoceris. I am at Derek Van Riper. We got several other great pods that have launched recently here at the Athletic, and our full suite of fantasy baseball shows will be up and running next week. Tomorrow, Under the Radar with myself, Nando DeFino, and Ian runs. so be sure to check that out. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday.
1: Thanks for listening.